About two years ago, in a conversation with my PI, who's been a valuable mentor to me, I suggested that I would like to write a paper on consciousness for publication. I was concerned for a number of reasons which were unrelated to the actual content I intended to convey. I was concerned about the capacity for an outsider like myself to get published and make an impact in a field that might be biased against my perspectives. Second, I was concerned that if I shared authorship with the PI, he might be given credit, at least in large part, for what I was preparing to write. The paper I had in mind was developed on my own and was outside of the lab's purview and expertise. I wanted to do it on my own, but I was worried about how and indeed if it would be received. My PI was supportive of the idea, but he suggested essentially that I was wasting my time if my efforts would not lead to grant-funded research. This took me by surprise. Naively, I had not really considered that the currency of the scientific enterprise is funding, not knowledge. This was a concern I hadn't even contemplated. No wonder nobody in university labs ever talks about deep ideas. There's no money in it. Mind you, I am not suggesting that academic scientists are on the take. The scientists are not taking grant money home with them in a suitcase. What is happening is that the hiring of faculty, advancement to tenure, the real brass tacks of the scientific profession come down to having and maintaining sources of funding. But why? If I can make an important impact by contributing theoretical work that moves the field, and I can do so at minimal cost, isn't it a no-brainer to do so? Isn't advancement of knowledge the ultimate purpose of academic science? Recently, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying were talking about this on the Dark Horse podcast. Hying said, quote, The business model of the modern university has meant that the science that is promoted the science that is encouraged from the very moment you enter graduate school until you are getting full professorship is encouraging you, if you are a scientist, to do science that is expensive." Unquote. She went on to say, quote, "...basic science is that science for which you don't yet have an idea of what the implications for human flourishing might be. What it is is, I see a pattern, I want to know what explains it. I'm going to try to figure it out." Unquote. A bit later, Hang said, quote, but what it does in part is A, it increases human knowledge, but it also increases the facility of the brain that is doing it, such that if you as a graduate student start off already on someone else's mega project, because that is the kind of science that is encouraged to be done, because that is the business model of the universities, you never get a chance to say, wait, how about this? What about if... And as a result, those people that are getting PhDs who got shunted into other people's labs who have big NIH grants and NSF grants, and are just expected to do little tiny pieces of puzzles that the PIs, the principal investigators, and their mentors are already doing, never had the chance to actually become scientists. They don't know what they are doing at a really, really necessary level. They may fully understand how to do the methodology that they were trained to do, and presumably they know how to read the literature and interpret it and make sense of it. But the absolutely necessary, kind of unteachable part of the scientific method is, I see something, I'm going to try to explain it. What are all the possible explanations for that thing? That is this hard to explain to someone else how you do it, but utterly necessary part of science that is being tamped down by the business model that is now dominant." Unquote. Hying goes on to explain how the business model of academic science works. Federal grants, which are acquired through NIH or NSF or DOD, are administered through the grants offices, which take an overhead rate for the university. She did a quick search online to see what the current rates are that are taken by the university when a researcher gets a federal grant. 
searching the overhead for research done at American universities, here are the first five that show up. UT Austin, 58.5%. University of Utah, 52.5%. Harvard, 69%. University of Washington, 54.5%. USC, 65%. This is effectively my profession, and I had no idea the universities were taking that much. Weinstein said, quote, if it is true that professors are valued by their schools in large measure based on how much money they bring in, because that money, half of it or more, goes to the university, right, it's the thing that builds the buildings and pays for everything, if that's the thing that is prioritized, then you end up accumulating a whole faculty full of people who see things in terms of big experiments. What you don't get is theory, and I don't mean theory in the way that that term has been abused. I mean that you don't have theorists, and basically the point is, Science involves an oscillation between hypothesis generation and test. Ultimately, theories are the product of this if a test goes sufficiently well. But the point is, you can't cut the theorists out. You cut the theorists out, you're no longer doing science. And when you describe these people who work in these big labs and they do their very narrow thing, I would say that it's not that they don't know how to do science. They know how to participate in science, but they can't do the whole process because the process is an integral process and they've done one little aspect of it. And that's a very dangerous phenomenon. But increasingly, what we have are whole faculties that are staffed by people who come from one side." Unquote. He goes on to explain that theorists don't require a lot of money. Apparently, and counterintuitively, this is a liability for the department. So if they hire me and I produce high-quality theoretical science, this is nevertheless not in the primary interest of the department or the university. By hiring somebody else who might work in relative obscurity on a long-term incremental project which attracts big federal grants, they stand to make millions. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and Charles Darwin need not apply. Perhaps I have a great mind. Perhaps I'm an inspirational teacher. It doesn't matter. They don't need to attract more students. The applications are flying in and young people are lining up to mortgage their futures at $10,000 a semester. When my PI suggested that I should focus on publishing what will enable me to get future grants, he was looking out for my best interest, not as an intellectual, but as an academic scientist. He's trying to help me advance my career. He's been successful and to the degree possible he wants to help open doors for me to be successful too. There is nothing but honor in the advice he has given, but I look at the situation differently. Making money for the university might be my job, but it is not my career. My career is to make intellectual contributions that expand scientific understanding. This here, this stupid podcast, is in the service of my career goals. In fact, it takes away from time I might be spending on my job. Something about this is upside down. At the possible expense of my future prospects in academia, I'm going to keep on exploring ideas. Today, I'll ponder what qualia are made of. This discussion will yield no federal grants, will come at no cost to the American taxpayer, and will take up valuable company time that might have been used in applying for more funding. Up yours, grant office. I'm a scientist, not a fundraiser. So let's have at it. Of what are qualia composed? Qualia are the raw data of subjective experience, the redness of red, the blueness of blue, the scent of nutmeg, the chalky feeling of antacids on the tongue, a flash of movement across the peripheral vision, a pang of regret, a fleeting memory, an idea spoken in the mind. It is difficult to break experiences all the way down to atomic qualia, 
but let's allow that these examples I've listed and any other pieces of perception or thought which might be experienced are composed of qualia. Thus, a given experience is a whole composition of qualia. And observe that the composition is always in flux. That is, new qualia appear, old qualia persist or change or go away altogether. These are the contents of consciousness. All right, we aren't breaking any new ground just yet. If there is no content, then there is no consciousness. So as a matter of experience, consciousness is nothing more than the beholding of qualia. The important thing is that we don't see and hear and feel the qualia in isolation. They are united, and thus emerges a massive amount of meaningful information. We see that this is next to that. We hear that this is louder or closer than that. We see that this is moving away from that. We think that this is kind of like that, and so on. Thus far, we have described things in a more or less phenomenal way, and we reasoned our way to a few basic principles directly from experience. We should add that the contents of consciousness correlate to neuronal activities in the cerebral cortex. We have every reason to believe that no piece of qualitative content could appear or persist or change or disappear unless correlated to neuronal functions that have appeared or persisted or changed or disappeared too. Yet it must be noted that many, perhaps most, neuronal activities do not produce or alter qualia at all. This is even true in the cerebral cortex. Furthermore, the global style of activities in the thalamocortex correlates to states of consciousness versus states of non-consciousness. It certainly cannot be claimed that non-conscious states, even deep under general anesthesia, entail the ceasing of neuronal firing. On the contrary, there is just as much firing of action potentials evident under such conditions as in thoroughly wakeful conscious states. Given all this, what are qualia? Clearly, we can distinguish the redness of red from whatever set of neurons or neuronal processes in visual cortex correlate with them. It is like distinguishing between a hammer and the act of hammering. But there is even another step required in the distinction between qualia and cortical neurons. After all, there is the neuron, and then there is what the neuron does. Crudely, there is the neuron and its action potential. The action potential is like the act of hammering for the hammer. It's the verb form of neuron in that sense. So our analogy won't do. How about force? There is the hammer, the hammering, and the force which results. But here again, we have not found an analogy to qualia because the action potential stimulates the release of neurotransmitter, which interacts with other neurons. If anything, the neurotransmitter is the nail and the next cell in the, is the plank of wood which receives it. No matter how granular we may go, we will not discover the would-be qualia by this method of analogy. Let's suppose that a given quale arises as a direct consequence of one particular neuron firing action potentials. In truth, this might be too reduced to suggestion, but let's allow it for the sake of discussion. Let's imagine that this neuron is necessary for the production of this exact quale. In the awake subject, we stimulate this neuron and there is a perfectly responding quale every single time. If we destroy this one neuron, this quale cannot happen anymore. You get the idea. But our whole thought experiment presupposes a state of consciousness in the subject. We can't take our hypothetical neuron out of the brain and culture it in a dish isolated from the brain and expect that neuron to produce the quale there. Who would experience it? The point is that at this level of reduction, consciousness does not make sense. The solution I have proposed in the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, or TICL, is that there are two necessary sides to consciousness. The content, or qualia, and the point of view. The qualia are indeed produced by a small number of neurons, but they are appreciated by or beheld by a massive network. 
If our little neuron were part of that network, it would be a member of a subsystem, perhaps a very small subsystem. But importantly, it would also be a tiny part of the massive network, the system. When our little neuron is stimulated to fire action potentials, they stimulate a few other neurons and form a temporary subsystem. They are integrated within the whole system, but they are more tightly integrated with one another. As a result, they have a higher level of temporally integrated causality within their subsystem than does the whole system. The system feels this and experiences the qualia. But wait, I still have not really attempted to say what qualia are, have I? Given my TICL framework, the qualia are what it is like from the point of view of the system to have a given subsystem occurring within it. The qualia are the current relationship between the subsystem and the system. Which part of the massive network has formed that subsystem, and exactly how the subsystem interacts with other subsystems and so on, determines the precise relationship. If qualia are relational, then they are an abstraction, not a concrete thing. Here we find an interesting piece of reasoning. Let's think about con concrete and abstract things for a moment. Take notes played on a guitar. We play one note or we play another note. The string vibrates at some frequency according to which note we are playing, at which fret we are stopping the string. If we play three notes in series, there will be some overall effect, a little melody. It doesn't matter which string we do this series of frets on. The same relationship will obtain. The overall effect is determined not by the notes, but by the relationship among the notes. That relationship is an abstraction. It does not exist in addition to the notes themselves. So is it real? This is where we have to distinguish between truth and reality. Abstractions are true in mathematical equations. Logical statements are true likewise. But that does not mean they are real. I contend that abstractions which are true are real in consciousness. You and I cannot deny the qualia we perceive. Yet they are relationships, not concrete things. We literally behold the relationship and infer the objects in the world to which they refer. Thus, we can be sure of the reality of the relationships, but we cannot know of the reality of the concrete thing itself. This is a total inversion of the usual way of thinking about the world. I'll tell you a little story to see if it helps to bring the point home. A boy comes across a carpenter with his hammer and supplies, a pile of boards and a bucket of nails. And the boy says, What are you doing, mister? And the carpenter says, I'm making a fence. The boy sees a pile of boards and a bucket of nails and walks away puzzled. He does not believe it is possible for a man to make something. Only God can do that. So he returns a while later and sees the carpenter there with his fence. He sees that the bucket is empty and there is no longer a pile of boards. The boy says to the carpenter, That's amazing, you have made a fence. But your bucket is empty and your pile of boards is gone. The carpenter tells him, I use those to build the fence. And the boy walks away disappointed. He thinks, the man has not made anything after all. You see, the carpenter has only rearranged things which already existed. Must we conclude, as reductionist thinkers, that there is no such thing as a fence? Mm -hmm.